Hello, my name is Chris Salter and welcome to the Junior Family Law Podcast. A collaboration between Burgess Salmon, Mills and Reeves and Newton Kearns. So we're here to discuss the budget and the needs section of the Formy at section 3.1 and I know I for one have definitely found um, the budget and the income needs section a bit overwhelming at times. And what about you, Chris and Abby? Thanks, Evie. I would agree. Um, budgets are one of those things which you find towards the end of for me in section three. And it's a part which is often overlooked by clients and given less weight. They think they have to complete the entire form from the start of just putting in their personal details to putting in the properties and the other assets they own. And then when it comes to the income needs at the end, it's almost forgotten. But that's not the case. And their importance is huge in many needs cases in particular, can really hinge on them. And they're they're scrutinised by the court, line by line, by judges, by the other side, by everyone involved who's looking at a Form E. And then if you take it to a final hearing, then there's cross-examination on them as well. So they can be very intense for our clients and for, for us when completing these and getting our clients to complete them. I agree, Chris. I think that actually the fact that they are um, something in the for me, they do tend to fall to you as a more junior lawyer, but actually the pressure of knowing that there might be someone with a pencil going through it at some stage in the proceedings um, can feel a bit overwhelming if you put down the wrong figure for um, your client's hairdressing. So um, I absolutely agree with that. And Abby, do you um, find the same? Do you find clients in particular yeah (laughs) I echo that in in that for me tends to feel like quite a chore for a client and they um by the time they get to the the budget it feels a lot less important to them and so then we end up having to be quite heavily involved and kind of coaching them through it and reminding them that it it can be brought up at a final hearing or in a questionnaire um and just coming back to that is really important I also think that um, tying in with kind of the afterthought part is that clients find them just a bit overwhelming. They feel like they've they've earned their their crust, as it were, and then they get to this um, huge budget and we're asking them to plug in essentially everything they spend in a year. And I absolutely don't like looking at that in any kind of detail. And especially when you've got people going through divorce, you're asking them to look at a future that already feels quite uncertain. So um, I think that that can compound things and I find absolutely that we've got two types of clients ones that have got spreadsheets for everything that's come in gone out for the last 25 years and some that don't know how much of agri-crisps is um, so that's definitely an issue yeah kind of echoing that I think a thing for clients that is really difficult is they're used to having one household so splitting it down into two households and actually working out what are going to be costs that are going to be with them moving forward or ones that will fall away and particularly for clients who may still be living with their ex-partner or in the process of only just moving out of the the former matrimonial home it is really hard for them to ascertain what's going to kind of fall away or even increase in time I think we find as well clients who are perhaps on the back foot so they're not heavily involved in the finances during the marriage they find this really really overwhelming if they've got absolutely no idea how much bills cost let alone how much is being spent on food or whatnot it, it can feel really daunting for them and they might need a little bit of extra coaching um, and guidance on that. I completely agree Abby and I also think this is the first time for lots of clients that they've had to put pen to paper and really um, put a figure on their future and I think that can just be um, ridiculously overwhelming for lots of people and that also factors into the capital needs when you ask them to put a figure on what they are going to need to live in 
to drive around, etc. I think it can just be one of those things that's a bit daunting. And it's the thing to add in is how time consuming they then can be for those clients who know how much they spend month by month. It shouldn't actually take them that long. But for those clients who are not financially savvy, it will take them such a long time to go back through their bank statements and actually to work out how much they have spent on certain items and how much they're likely going to spend in the future. I'm sure it's not just me that spent the last few days before a form he needs to be exchanged chasing a client for the budget to pin that down for everything else to be um, finalised. It's definitely one of those things. So when you've got a formy and you've got a budget in the back, how do you go about explaining it to a client? So do you um, fix it in the wider law and how it talks to the court about the needs of the client? Or do you try and break it down at all? Chris? I would say that a proportion of our cases will depend on needs. This is where there's not enough assets of the marriage for the sharing principle to be fully engaged. So it is likely that maintenance may be payable from one party to the other if there's a higher earner so this is where needs in these budgets become so vital you need to set out to your client what the purpose of the activity is we're not just wanting to understand how much they spend at Harvey Nichols or how much they spend at Waitrose we're not doing it purely to be nosy we're doing it to ensure that our client's future in the short or medium or long term is protected and that they have enough income to do that so we're looking at their income needs I do feel, though, when we're doing a form E, and as we were saying earlier, it's one of those things at the end where clients can be exhausted of the form when they get to this stage. So I found that there's no need, need, wrong word, there's no point going back to clients and explaining the law in depth as to why you're doing this, but explain to them that we need to understand how much you're spending months and months to put this into a form E to help frame any final award. So it's not a case of going back to the full section 25 facts and explaining the law to them, but just saying, look, we need to understand what you've spent and we can help clients do this. We should at this stage have their bank statements, which are provided in for me. So we already have a good indication of what they might spend. We have a feel for the overall relationship and how much they're spending, but we need them to put that down into words to actually pin them to figures. Absolutely, I agree. And what I find some clients struggle with is the difference between the current and and anticipated figures, especially different to what you said earlier, Abby, if they have actually moved out and they are almost living these two separate lives now, they don't know whether they should change um, the figures for their anticipated. And as a general rule of thumb, I always think that the anticipated should be largely the same as the current unless there's an obvious reason as to why um, they've changed. Is that the tack that you two tend to take? I think something else that's really important when um, explaining the budget to the client is having a discussion with them about their standard of living. So that's a separate part of the for me. But talking to them about what their standard of living was during the marriage Obviously, on the understanding that in a needs based case, when you have one household splitting into two, it's very unlikely you might be able to accommodate the same standard of living. But the court will attempt to do that in so far as possible when making an order. So in looking at what you're putting on the budget, you want to try and keep that same. If if you go out for dinner and you have a certain routine, pop it down. And if the court can accommodate it in their order, they will. I would agree. And taking that point further, for example, storage costs. If you do have a client who is in rented accommodation and it looks likely that as part of a settlement, they may be able to purchase or move into a property. You don't want to then include storage costs as an anticipated expense going forward. It should be remembered that you're actually when you're saying your future anticipate costs, these are needs which you anticipate for a long term into the future. They shouldn't be things which may be short term. 
it leads to interest and discussions about whether counselling and therapy should be included as an anticipated need and how that works. Your client may at the time feel that as a result of their relationship breakdown, they need therapy or counselling or assistance. But in three to five years time, is that still a cost which should be included in the for me? It's a tactical point around budgets, which should be looked at further, I think. Yeah, definitely. And in terms of the um, anticipated uh, costs, a kind of push that we often have to take is if a client is in rented accommodation, they will put the rented um costs down that they're currently paying whereas if they are going to be looking to buy in the near future the costs are obviously going to be different and they need to cater in mortgage costs if there's going to be a mortgage and I think it's just giving clients that really gentle nudge to consider that because again it's quite a stressful form anyway for me so they're going to be finding it quite emotional and overwhelming so it's just giving those gentle nudges definitely to and include I also that. think though if you've got a client that's a bit overwhelmed you can give them the sweetener if they're moving out on their own they may be eligible for a 25 percent reduction in council tax so that's one to make it slightly more appealing when they're filling out the form so a further point to consider when looking at anticipated needs are those who run personal expenditure through businesses for example when you have a husband or a wife who run their vehicle expenses petrol tax insurance etc through a business uh, if this is a wife who's doing it who has for example access to a fuel card that may not be available in the future because of the divorce so that's something which wouldn't be a current expense but would be an anticipated one which needs to be looked at in the future same with the reverse as well, where if you have a client who's still running all of their expenditure through the business, if, for example, upon a final settlement and divorce, that business can no longer afford to run those expenses, they would again have to be included as an anticipated cost. Yeah, absolutely. Um, I see quite a lot of clients underestimating their income needs. Generally, they find it, some clients find it relatively easy to put together the, the household expenses on bills, just looking through the bank statements. But when it comes to stuff such as estimating their toiletries and their dentistry costs, it is always massively underestimated. We also find a lot of clients are reluctant to put costs down for holidays and theatre trips and kind of nice outings that they would potentially like to do in the future, but they just don't provide for it in the in the budget often when we talk to clients about this it seems to be the rhetoric that they say well we haven't been on holiday in a couple of years or we haven't been to the theatre in the last year and often that's because they're going through a divorce that's extremely expensive and stressful and you know I think it's reminding clients that this is as Chris said earlier we're looking at the the longer term and the, the foreseeable future what they're going to be spending and it's reminding them that it's okay to put stuff in about holidays and clothes um, and also things in terms of presents and children costs we find that they're massively underestimated and clients often underestimate children's costs within the budget on the basis that they intertwine them with their own costs and that's not always the most productive way to do it. So what do you do um, if you find a client's being a bit unrealistic with their budget? I'm sure we've all had experience where a client is just putting in um, some fairly ridiculous figures up or down um, for different items. And I wondered if you two had any um, experience of what to do when that happens. Yeah, thanks, Evie. So there's been a few which I've come across in the past where, where you find people setting unrealistically high budgets. As we said at the start, some people really have no idea how much they spend or how much they're likely to spend as part of this 
future process they're about to enter into. So their budgets become completely unrealistic and just do not mimic their standard of living and are nothing like what's seen in their bank accounts. So I think a prime example I've come across is I mentioned storage earlier. So storage is another good example where it was expected that one party would move into a five bedroom house and there was still a huge annual claim for storage because she came from a much smaller house. And it's just unrealistic. And in fact, in this case, it was a massive distraction because both parties became so hung up at the FDR on the cost of storage that it basically detracted away from many of the more pertinent arguments. But it comes back to more trivial points than that. We see people who are given a budget form which lists many a different item which are there as a steer and as a guide to help prompt expenditure thoughts. But they'll see cleaners and gardeners and window cleaners think, oh, actually, I want all of these and then start putting in uh, amounts for them. They've never had a cleaner or a gardener before, but now they're seeing the opportunity where they could assign a figure to it and put it in there. Again, it's just immediately going to cause issues because the other side will look at that and scrutinise it. So, well, hang on a minute. You've never had it before. Why do you want it now? It's just unrealistic. It comes back down to other things as well. Handbags, candles, flowers. What is a reasonable figure for it? Now, it could be that you look at it and you say, actually, do you need £15,000 per year for candles in your new home? Um, I don't know. I find that absolutely outrageous. But then it goes back to the standard of living. Has that what's been afforded during the marriage? Have they spent that much on candles over the last however many years? And if that's the case, maybe it's not ridiculous. But chances are in that situation, it would be. I don't think you can ever spend too much on candles, um, quite frankly. And I absolutely agree. I think that sometimes you see clients that use the for me as a bit of a wish list. Um, and it's quite hard to rein them back in once they have thought about the window cleaner. Um, Abby, do you find the same? Um, do you have clients being unrealistic, up or down? In terms of whether to include a figure, generally we'll look at whether the client has got property particulars they're interested in and whether they've obtained kind of information about their mortgage raising capacity so that we can realistically include those figures in the capital needs section. But if they haven't and they're not at that stage yet, which a lot of clients aren't, we tend that to find that it's just best to state what they want in principle and not place a figure on it and tie them down to that figure. So, for example, I need a three bedroom house and I need a car to take my kids to school without putting a figure on it, tends to be a sensible approach in some cases. No, I agree. That can be quite hard to unpick. And it's made even worse this year, isn't it? Because no one's been on holiday this year and trying to get clients to appreciate that they can still include a figure, despite the last year, is definitely quite difficult. I think it all comes down to really is that actually a budget just needs to be robust. It needs to be reality tested. And what can be helpful is actually including some of the explanation within the budget and explaining how that figures come about and I know that some of my um, best experience with budgets are with clients that are all over the detail and actually they give you a figure you query it because it seems a bit lower a bit high and then they can rattle through exactly how they've calculated it and you know that actually if it did come to a point where they were cross-examined on it they'd be fine because it may not be a figure you particularly agree with their candle expenditure may be much higher than you would spend but they've produced me a year of receipts showing that £15,000 was a pretty bad year for them for candles and actually it's normally 22. Another perfect example of reality testing is something I did with a client a few months ago where they provided me a figure for the amount of money they spend on petrol every month 
I, I'm aware of their car, their car was included in there for me. So a quick search of the miles per gallon, which their vehicle could do, working that through with the price of petrol, it worked out that this client drove around 18,000 miles a month if you were to listen to how much he said he used on petrol. Now, obviously, that's clearly unrealistic. He doesn't do that much driving. In fact, he barely drives at all, especially at the moment. So that is a perfect time where you can just cross-check your own client's budget to be like, actually, this is unrealistic. You need to think, what are you spending? Rather than just picking figures out of thin air as to how much you think you may spend on petrol in the future. That's a really good point, actually, that almost cross-examining your own client on um, some of the figures that come up can be helpful down the line. And I'm really conscious that we have um, done this podcast about uh, just generally needs and we've only really spoken about income needs and the budget. And actually, there is another section in there um, for the capital needs. And I wondered how you both approach that, because often you'll have a client where they want to stay in the family home or they want to move. And there's the decision to be made as to whether you put a figure on that in the for me or you come to that down the line. And I wondered if either of you had any comments about how how you approach the capital needs i would agree in that leaving out a figure may well be sensible it can be very tactical as to what you put in this box and you must be careful as what you say because you don't want to sign your client up to something which is unrealistic you could just your client could as a throwaway comment say oh well i'm happy to live in a two-bedroom bungalow oh i'm happy to buy it at two hundred thousand. for example if you take your client's instruction and just put that you could be doing them a huge disservice as what their end result could be a much larger property. However, as for me is a sworn document, as we all know, it appears in every court bundle. It will be poured over by every judge, every barrister, and comments which you may make at the very outset of proceedings. If you're then a year down the line at a final hearing, you'll regret massively tying your client's hands to something and in a particular value. So I'd agree, put in loosely as to what you think you would need, but I wouldn't assign a value to it. I agree. I often imagine a judge with a red pen circling things that I've put. And I suppose this is the joy of being um, the junior family lawyer podcast is that actually these are strike quite strategic decisions that we don't actually have to make um, on the whole. And that's part of the wider the wider strategy that we're helping with. And I tend to find. I suppose the best way for us to sort of round this podcast off is to talk about um, tips and tricks that you've picked up along the way that you'd like to share with our listeners um so i'll kick things off i think that the um table that's included in the for me is all well and good and it can be fit for purpose but actually it can like we said earlier act as a bit of a wish list for clients or it can just not really suit their lifestyle so what i find is one of the best things to do is actually to use our own spreadsheet on excel and get them to and then you can strip out what's not relevant and you can get them to plug in their own figures to that. You can also on that have a column that explains some of the figures like we spoke about earlier. You can justify some of the needs a bit more. And I just think it gives clients a bit more freedom. It also lets you pull off things. If you know they've not got children, then you can pull off the whole children's section. It stops them getting distracted and actually it's not relevant to them and it's just not it's not necessary same things if they've got extra houses you can have sections for each house or if you know they've not got houses you just pull it back to one so I think that that that's a really good way to kind of focus the client's minds and they can plug in figures and it all adds themselves up and they can see how it goes so um Abby did you have any top tips 
Um, I think my top tip would be in terms of, so for me, it says that you can include figures on a weekly basis, monthly basis or annual as long as you're consistent. Generally, I find it's easiest to include monthly figures because bills are obviously monthly and it's easier to quantify in that way. Generally, just pick one and make sure that the client is using the monthly figures or the annual figures because sometimes you find that they get a little muddled and try and slip in um, annual or weekly figures and it just messes up the totals. So just stick to one and be consistent with it. I think we've all been slightly alarmed when an annual figure snuck into the monthly. <laughs> You've got absolutely no idea where it's come from. Um, Chris, did you have any top tips? I do. And just following on from that, some annual expenses could actually be quite small. Your burglar alarm, for example, it may not be very much. And though the sort of figures which could slip in, which when exchanger for me, it's the sort of thing the other side will pick up very quickly. As to, we've been paying £10 a month for our burglar alarm. Now, why have you put in it's 100 Well, it's just a simple slip up where we as client, or where our clients have just, just got it wrong and we haven't picked up on it. So a very good cross check, as I alluded to earlier, is to go back through bank statements, have a look, have a look what they've been spending and see, does it actually match up? What's their income? How much have they been receiving? And what are they saying that their overall outgoings and needs are? Are they broadly comparable? If there's a massive disparity, try and find out why. Is it that they've hugely overestimated or underestimated? As we said at the start, these things can be very daunting for our clients and it might actually be one where as juniors, we can really get involved and do quite a lot of the legwork for our clients, provided they're willing to pay for it and complete a lot of these ourselves for them to then cross check and add to. Because we have 12 months worth of bank statements and we're just going to look through that and say, what have they spent? So, as Abby said, utilities easy because every month it should be a similar figure. And then we can look at it and see, well, actually, well, where are they spending the rest of their money? Are they going out clothes shopping? Are they going to restaurants? And we can steer our clients with a first draft before they go in, actually cross check that with their own lives to see if that is actually similar to what, what they're doing on the ground. I think we can all agree that actually the way to tackle a budget is to check everything your client has written thoroughly and if in doubt, ask them because better for it to be us than um, the other barrister in a courtroom. I think we have fairly neatly summarised budgets and made that slightly less overwhelming for junior lawyers, I hope. So thanks, Abby. Thanks, Chris. You have been listening to the Junior Family Law Podcast, a collaboration between Burgess Salmon, Mills and Reeve and Newton Kearns. We look forward to you joining us on the next episode.